Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of Prolific, a podcast journey through rhetoric, composition, and technical communication. Uh, Hello from Lansing, Michigan, which is completely covered in snow, and the low the other day was 7 degrees. Uh, Dear listeners, I'm a Texan, and this cold might do me in. Karen, could you turn the heat on? Great, thanks, Karen. Have a great holiday break. Wait, what's that? Be sure to let the listeners know that the next episode is covering disability studies and rhetoric and composition. <laughs> okay, I will. You have a great break. Uh, Karen, the machine's getting kind of loud. Karen? Karen? Oh, Karen, what are we going to do with you? Good thing we explosion-proofed the office here at Prolific Headquarters. Anyways, this time around, we run through multimodality and multimodal composition. We'll go over some of the more important concepts central to the notion of multimodal work and composition, going over some key articles and books. Then, we'll cover some excellent resources for learning about and doing multimodal work. Finally, the latter part of this episode, like always, is a conversation I had with four other graduate students here at Michigan State University. Now, with that chat, we recorded in a conference room in the Writing Center, which is where I work, so we had to deal with some bad acoustics and some squeaky chairs. Sorry about any quality issues in advance, though there aren't any loud people running by or anything like that. That said, the conversation is so good, and we kinda covered much of what usually goes in the front part of these episodes. So this front part will be a little shorter than normal so we can get to the good stuff. Plus, it's just a fun, funny conversation, so this front part will cover the basics. Now, with that all out of the way, let's get started. First, just what is multimodality? Now, normally I begin these episodes with a brief historical overview of the topic at hand. But in this case, despite what some might say, the surge in attention to multimodality in composition is relatively new, with the bulk of the scholarship coming out in the 2000s and beyond, when I was in middle school. If you're Jason Palmieri, Cheryl Ball, Andrea Lunsford, Cynthia Self, or Kathleen Gancy, you might say that multimodality is the move away from traditional print-based, or what we would normally think of as composition, and toward new mediums of composing or writing. You can't see this, but I just did air quotes. (laughs) So, in place of a historical timeline, let's overview some basic concepts. Now, I think it's important that we distinguish from the beginning the fact that multimodal composing is not necessarily the same thing as what we would consider as digital composition or digital rhetoric though the latter is certainly a component of the former. Straight up, let's say it here. Multimodal composition does not always mean digital composition. There are plenty of terms used to describe multimodality, non-discursive, cultural rhetorics, and more, but for the sake of clarity, let's just get that out of the way. So, in other words, we could say that multimodal composition can be the creation of digitally mediated texts, artifacts, videos, blogs, websites, podcasts, like this thing you're listening to now, and any combination of those things that are multisensory in the sense that we see them, feel them, and hear them. It's important to note that, in addition to all of those things, we should consider writing to be part of that composition. In fact, in Remixing Composition, A History of Multimodal Writing Pedagogy, Jason Palmieri says that even thinking about alphabetic text, or words on paper and with computers, invoke the kind of creativity that is inherent in multimodal composition. Moreover, When we think of multimodal composition, we have to consider the places in which we invent and compose. Uh, Rhetoric. Put another way, think of how I am sitting in my office, typing this script, 
and then reading it while recording using a microphone, while reading off a monitor, while my laptop is on a pile of books to make it easier to see. This is a multimodal composition. This podcast and the way that I invented the ideas and the way that I'm recording. Although, uh, this might be a rough sketch of what that kind of work looks like. Uh, but right here, I think it's important to return to the prior note about what kinds of composition are multimodal. In the conversation with four of the grad students that comes after this section, we talked a bit about what kinds of composition can be considered multimodal, but I'll touch on that conversation briefly right now, just to give you a sense of what we got at. In that conversation, we briefly mentioned two people, Malia Powell and Angela Haas. With Haas and her article, Wampum as Hypertext, an American Indian Intellectual Tradition of Multimedia Theory and Practice, we start noticeably getting the sense that multimedia can be a multitude of things or objects that aren't necessarily what we would think of as a composed text. Tracing a history of cultural practice among American Indian communities, she showed us, quote, the first known skilled multimedia workers and intellectuals in the Americas, end quote. In other words, Haas in a way told folks studying and theorizing multimodality, hey look here, multimodality isn't just making a video or a podcast or a PowerPoint, it's doing cultural work embedded in experience, practice, culture, and objects. Similarly, Malia Powell in the introduction to the special issue on cultural rhetorics and enculturation tells us to look to such cultural rhetorical practices as sites of multimodal work. For a really good look at how we might think of what these practices look like, I highly recommend checking out an article in Kairos titled On Multimodal Composing. In that piece, Danielle DeVos, among many, many other authors, run through their compositions, including a traditional paper, slam poetry, music, and more. I think this piece does an excellent job of capturing the essence of what people are trying to get at with multimodality and compositions, so definitely check it out. Citations for all those articles, of course, will be in the show notes. What's more, they tell us to look out for the stories within those practices. Like I said before, the conversation after this section goes into much, much more detail about this, so you should definitely stick around for that. Now, like with normal composition, multimodal composition involves all sorts of processes that we normally associate with writing a paper or making a slideshow or something like that. Rhetorical situation, audience awareness, ethics, delivery, these are all considerations that we have to take when multimodally composing. Though Palmieri would tell us that what we think of normal composition has always been multimodal. What we know as multimodal composition today, though, involves many different practices and theories, which is why it can sometimes feel hard to get a sense of where to go for information about it. Well, never fear, I know rhetoric and I have a list. First, you'll definitely want to check out the works of the people that I've mentioned thus far and these folks. Uh, Jody Shipka, Kathleen Yancey, Jonathan Alexander and Jacqueline Rhodes, more of Angela Haas's work, more of Malia Powell's work, and Cynthia's self as well. Now, if you wanted to read more about the concepts and people that I talk about here, I would highly recommend checking out the Digital Rhetoric Collaborative and the Cultural Rhetorics Theory Lab, which is through Michigan State University. Now, the uh, Cultural Rhetorics Lab has a, a ton of resources. Like, if seriously, if you want to know more about the uh, cultural rhetorics and multimodality, I'd highly recommend checking that out. And all it takes is just a quick Google, and it'll be through Michigan State University. So definitely check that out. So, like with the list in the episode before this one, this list will likely grow as I find more sources, so be sure to head over to the SoundCloud page uh, with a link in the show notes to see more as time goes by. 
Well, I don't mean to rush you, dear listener, but the cold is encroaching and I have to deal with the exploded heater. So let's get into the conversation I had with the four other graduate students. I promise it'll be fun and I'm gonna try to stay warm. Okay, so this is another episode, <laughs> uh, take two. Um, I'm here with four other graduate students. Let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm Kate Firestone. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Should I keep going? Yeah, go, okay. you go. you're fine. Uh, I'm a third year PhD student in writing rhetoric in American cultures. I am Lauren Brennell. I am also a third year PhD student in writing rhetoric in American cultures. I'm Elise Dixon, and I'm also a third-year <laughs> PhD student in writing rhetoric in American cultures. <laughs> Hi, and then I'm Rebecca Small, and I'm a first-year master's student in writing rhetoric in American cultures. And I'm a first-year student in writing rhetoric in American cultures. And I feel like I just needed to say it because everyone else got to say it. <laughs> <laughs> writing rhetoric in American cultures. <laughs> um, so we're talking about two things today, the multimodal movement in composition and digital rhetoric. So it's basically whatever you want to say about that. Like, what's been your experience with either? What you feel? What you def- how you define both? Um, anything like that. So whoever has anything to say about it, to like any of those prompts, go for it. Or how it's been a part of your work life if you're like coming from work or something like that. I have so many things to say. <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> Uh, I just I just wrote about all of this in my comprehensive exams over the weekend. So that's it's like very fresh in my mind. But a lot of what I wrote about in my comprehensive exams was about. um, So my comprehensive exam question was, how does multimodality support queer and feminist composing and rhetorics? And if so, how? And um, as I was doing research, I came to realizations that I already had, but they were just much more distinct as I was reading through like tons and tons of work where um, in rhetoric and composition, a lot of multimodal work is um, feels like a, a real white buzzword for like something that that people have been doing forever. Um, so. Uh, the longer I, I mean, especially like in terms of queer multimodal work, a lot of the stuff that I read is usually operating from a, from a Western framework, a Western rhetorical framework. Um, so like if you think about something like Rhodes and Alexander's um, The Pleasure of the Queer Archive, they're, mm-hmm. they're trying to... They're trying to talk about the way queers use ethos, pathos, and logos in this multimodal way. So that would be a, a pretty salient example of using Western yeah. rhetoric to define um, how you're doing this like multimodal thing. So in this, in an attempt to disrupt these ideas of traditional linear alphabetic text compositions, they are still engaging in another form of traditional rhetoric. So I think the the more I study multimodality, the more I'm beginning to have a little bit of an aversion to the word, um, especially when there are scholars like, uh, um, oh my God, Chloe Driscoll or Angela Haas, who are talking about making, um, but not necessarily multimodality. So when, when Chloe Driscoll is talking about double weaving baskets or when Angela Haas is talking about making wampa belts, those, I think, by like, you know, retcon definition would be multimodal text, but they don't talk about them as multimodal. And I think 
some of that has to do with multimodalities, um, sort of embeddedness and whiteness. I, I agree with everything you're saying, at least <laughs> literally all of it. Um, and I have similar feelings. And I think some of it has to do with this treatment of multimodality as equivalent to innovation, um, which is also mm. its own buzzword. But it like. Word. <laughs> it's also a buzzword. Let's be real. Um, but there's this idea. Like all of the scholars that I see consistently using multimodality, it's in this way of like, we need to use multimodality to keep up with new changing technologies. Mm-hmm. We need to use multimodality to speak to new environments and corporate structures yeah, and blah, blah, blah. Um, And so, and then you have these scholars who are looking at what we would call multimodal texts that are more traditional and I do a lot of work with collage so that's one of the forms that I'm interested in and like people who talk about collage and write about collage aren't using the word multimodality as Mm -hmm. much and I think some of that is that collage isn't always digital Mm -hmm. and so it's not seen as that kind of like innovativeness. I've fallen into that trap of just thinking about multimodal as synonymous with digital Mm-hmm. Because that's kind of how it's been presented to me a lot. Like, I remember in my undergrad taking an advanced composition course that was, like, heavily rhetoric-influenced. The multimodal aspect was basically just, like, give me a PowerPoint. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, I think that, that's what it was. I won't name names, but that's literally what it was. Like, <laughs> give me a PowerPoint or do something. Yeah, I feel like just so as someone who's only spent, like, two, two three months in <laughs> a rhetoric program, like, specifically I'm doing digital rhetoric, and... A lot of what I've seen is a lot of talk about multimodality, but there's no, like, and here's that work. Here's the multimodal work, and this is what we're calling it. It's a lot about, like, you know, obviously we're all, we're situated literally in a writing center currently. Like, it's a lot about the the composition process, but I'm not seeing like people pointing to specific pieces of work and talking about it. I'm like, you gave a, a couple of examples, but just... Yeah, I think buzzword is a really good word for how I've experienced this. Yeah. I think that connects too to a big takeaway in the in our core curriculum here, which is looking at how um Brett Compass has used certain things to establish itself as a discipline. Mm. And that I think multimodality, and especially as Lauren's talking about it in terms of like as, as progress to keep up with the changing times, you know, that that's a way that the discipline has used to kind of sell itself mm-hmm. um, and maintain that disciplinarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're super right. And I don't know why I thought you were going to go in like this other kind of <laughs> direction. But I it, thought about it. <laughs> it reminded me too of what we learned in Jackie Rhodes' visual rhetoric class last year, where we would often come across these like either we were reading about multimodality and people were theorizing it, or we were looking at some really shitty <laughs> like Kairos pieces that had really bad design and yeah. didn't and terrible content really. And like it was interesting that uh it seemed like if you make things, you're probably not writing about making things. And if you're making, and if you're like writing about making things, you're probably not making, not them. making them or you're making really crap versions of them on Kairos. Yeah, part of the colloquium <laughs> class is, part of the colloquium class that I'm taking as a first year PhD student, we had to look at journals. So I looked at Kairos Oof. and a lot of it was like, why is, why does it look this way? <laughs> yeah, I can't read this. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that a lot. And even like, 
writing about making those things, they're not pointing to actual good examples. Like they're pointing back to those examples where you're like, no, don't, that's not a great thing to be focusing on. I don't know. Again, I just think lack of examples of like what they're talking about multimodality is doing Mm -hmm. without actually showing like the receipts, I guess, of what it's doing. Going back to your question too, Will, which connects with what you were saying of this, like, why aren't people doing it? And, and stuff like that. I'm sorry, listener, if you heard that. <laughs> um, I wonder if it's because the threshold for doing it is so high. Like Kairos, you have to hand code everything, yeah. which not everyone can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not everyone can do well. Um, even if you have a basic knowledge, yeah, yeah, you're totally right in that. It's really hard. It takes forever. Mm-hmm. It does. And, and there's a lot of other places like that, that what, one thing I've noticed is um, because some of my work is multimodal and multimodal and digital, um, trying to find spaces to send some of that is actually much more difficult, even though there's more digital journals now because of the thresholds of acceptance that they have. It's like I don't hand code everything, and so I can't submit to Kairos, even mm-hmm. though I have entire websites of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder if that's also like a bar keeping a lot of people out yeah. of this conversation, too. Yeah, yes. I mean, if you think about what is it, the big push, like everything is coding. Like I was walking, uh, looking at a commercial the other day and it was literally like, teach your kid how to code and build robots. It's like, <laughs> that's, I guess it's assumed that everyone just should know how to code now. Yeah. But I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. I don't think that's the case. And I think to, especially in the case of Kairos, to gatekeep like that when people are making things and remixing things to make these, you know, like compositions and, and projects, that would be great to show and to showcase. To gatekeep like that is probably holding back a lot of really good content that you could use. But Can you imagine the stuff that they don't accept? I was thinking, can you imagine any other space you like has that bar? Because in corporate no. structures, you take a template that's already been created mm-hmm. and do that because it's like you want to do less work in order to get this yeah. stuff mm-hmm. but it's somehow in academia it's acceptable to be like everything must be have come from your own hands like i'm literally doing freelance work right now with web development i literally just like showed people the template and i was like i can customize this you will have to pay me less money because it'll take approximately 50 less hours like <laughs> and that's being generous to my own abilities mm-hmm. but like yeah, I mean, if, if I can do that on the business side and freelance of like, you're, I'm actually composing, I'm actually doing all of the work, but somehow it's illegitimate because it is framed by someone else's, you know, affordances. Yeah, and that comes right back to what Kate was talking about with legitimacy. Like, since Retcomp is, like, despite having existed for a good a good chunk of time these days, uh, the it is often framed in like, how do we make ourselves seem more relevant? And, uh, you know, so, you know, it started with the, the, the movement in which we, we put a lot of people in rooms and studied their writing processes. And uh, <laughs> look, writing is science. <laughs> and I feel like it's now. With that voice. Yeah. <laughs> and now here we are. Look, writing is computers. <laughs> Ooh, the internet. Yeah. yeah. Or the web. I still, pe- still see people yeah. writing this. The web, capital W. Ooh, yes. The World Wide Web. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. I know it's like ex- like the correct way to write internet with a capital I, but every time I see it, I'm like, 
Not even any, not yeah. anymore. The AP style, uh, the Associated Press says it can be lowercase or uppercase. Now it doesn't even matter. So yes. I've worked with that for the last three something years. So good. I'm gonna that's go with my biggest pet peeve. <laughs> Capital I Internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know how to the Internet. It's a series of tubes <laughs> <laughs> that Al Gore invented. <laughs> that planet. all lead to the cloud <laughs> directly. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I think about this podcast a lot too. Like, I don't even know what I'm trying to do with this. Well, I know what I'm. I know the the podcast's goal, but I don't know like what theory I'm even doing with this because it's just a podcast. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a big push, or like people try to push for like the sonic rhetoric thing, but mm-hmm. I haven't read any of that, and it probably shows like the way this the show sounds. But I think about like digital rhetoric practices, and I'm like, well, none of that really goes into this either. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be interesting to... I haven't read a whole lot of stuff about orality or sound. Um, like Steph Sarrazzo's work at all. Um, it would be interesting to see what Steph Sarrazzo would have to say about the podcast that you're making right now. I, I read some of her stuff, and I, I haven't read a huge sample, but I remember one of the things that, that I read was talking about essentially kind of mindfulness in sound. Um, and this like sonic rhetoric comes down to being aware of how different soundscapes um, affect you. And in that case, I don't think it's necessarily having like this technical expertise of making everything sound pristine and perfect mm-hmm. as much as it is like being aware of how these how the squeaky chairs mm-hmm. and that sound is influencing us because now we can't move without <laughs> squeaking the chair and like stuff like that. So. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. It's so. an interesting connection between audio and body then mm-hmm. like, oh yeah yeah that's cool. she talks about that in in the soundscape piece that i'm referencing because she talks about having i can't remember which way she moves i think she moves from a small town that has like you know farm sounds and very quiet to like pittsburgh or something like that which is very loud <laughs> yeah and you have all of these city sounds and she's like i didn't realize the effects that those sounds would have on my body and then i got like acclimated to them and went back to the farm and all of a sudden the quiet was disturbing and that was an effect on my mm-hmm. body too yeah, that just makes me think of uh, for the first year that I was here, I was living with Kate and Justin, and Kate and Justin had been living in this apartment in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, like across the street from uh, a gas station that had been lit on fire like more than once. <laughs> like, oh, like, Let's just make so, a podcast about that. Right? <laughs> and they, so they were like really used to cityscapey sounds, yeah. and I had moved from this like country house in rural Ohio. That's not where I grew up or anything. It's not where you grew up in the red. Like I lived in this like farmhouse where there was like no sounds and no cars ever. My when my dog would like get loose, there was no way he was gonna get run over by a car. I was just more worried that he was gonna get kicked in the face by a deer like those were my concerns and so when we moved I was like it's so loud around here this is like there are so many people so like we're in the city and Kate, Kate and Justin were like this is the most rural area we've ever lived in our whole lives it's so quiet suburban yeah. for Justin it was suburban yeah I feel like I grew up in the rural suburbs mm. but yeah living uh, living in Harrisburg I mean there was just cars going by all the time there were always police sirens Always people outside. We live next door to a bar. So. I feel like one weird sort of positionality thing related to that is like, so I'm from Michigan, lived here my whole life. I went to MSU for my undergrad and now I'm still here. And so like the weird like transition that a bunch of people are going through and how that's affecting all of their work and like 
just how they think about all of the things they're reading. I'm like, no, I'm just still here. Like, <laughs> I feel like I, my whole world hasn't been like reframed by this place. I'm just existing within yeah. this space. So I feel like I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm doing less or more because of that, but I mm. feel like I'm not in the same like headspace as a lot of my peers. Probably both and. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's this conversation that we're having now that is like about sound and now we've like moved sort of out of multimodality is like what I wish that multimodality work sometimes was getting into. I was just about to say there's always seems to me like a disconnect between the body and like the digital. Mm -hmm. Like I'm thinking about Alexander because I was um, I'm doing a paper for uh, Rhodes's class and I looked at this piece that Alexander Jonathan Alexander put out that's literally like different pictures of him. It's like, click on my body. Mm -hmm. And I was like, click. (laughs) Okay, I don't really see what this is getting at. Like, Mm -hmm. he's trying to bridge between, like, the body and the digital, but it didn't really do anything other than, like, load, like, an error page. So. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) So, yeah, um, bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And I, well. Let them hit the floor. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You know, and the text that I can think about that do make those connections go back to this idea that they're not those texts that we call multimodal. It's Driscoll and people like that doing it. Um, And I think of collage work where people, so I come from it from a trauma survivor perspective where collage is seen as this art therapy of like how to express things that have been done to your body Mm -hmm. um, without consent. And so those are definitely talked about embodied experiences and sometimes disembodied experiences read trauma, but not always as multimodal experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what I ended up kind of concluding my comprehensive exam uh, draft about. I hope I pass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Update coming soon. <laughs> I'll let you know. Uh, but I, I ended up kind of talking about how there's this other kind of category of work that doesn't necessarily refer to itself as multimodality, but where I see people making things, and in the process of making things, they're making their worlds. So... Like wampum belts, for example, are like these these things that were used as contracts that could be read and that created collective memory and relationships. And so like they build and are a part of this world that these people um, are engaging in and it becomes like a part of a system of values. And like it seems like work like what you're talking about with art therapy, that's a part of world building and, and a part of healing. So like I think all kinds there are tons of forms of multimodal composing that are like that i think dancing is like that or singing can be like that like when you are especially when you're gathering with people and you're doing these things um you're making your own world and you're like i we don't talk about it like that um and i think but i think that's what is happening a lot of the time when we when we make things and that's interesting to think about when those worlds come in contact with other worlds then like mm-hmm. the intersections that happen there or the sort of weird intersections between online and real world worlds I mean like I know like I've talked with Lauren and Will about my stuff that like maybe I'll do in the future who knows but like interested in specifically how people create their avatars online and their Mm -hmm. their online body like and how that can affect them and the way that those character creation like interfaces Mm -hmm. um and Victoria MacArthur is like 
who I've been reading lately, and she talks about how people don't like come to that space knowing exactly what they're going to create because they don't know what they can create. Mm -hmm. And so when they arrive in that space, it's like, okay, what can I do? And those affordances are never explored. Like people in human computer interaction talk about like, oh, what does it mean to have this kind of avatar? Like, how do people act? But they don't talk about the composition aspect of like going into that, like, like if you're playing Skyrim and you're on the wagon and then you create your person and you're there and you're like, this is terrible. And like, <laughs> who are you? I, I had to wait five minutes and I have like barely any options. Sorry, Skyrim. And like when they get to that space, like not seeing yourself in that space mm-hmm. or not like imagining that, oh, I'll be able to make some looks like me and then not being able to. That's a aspect of composition. You're building something. You're making yourself or an aspect of yourself. And like people talk a lot more about what happens after that. But I think that's, again, you're building a world. You're building like something that's very important to yourself, but you're not able to all of the time. And that can be a huge problem. That's really interesting. Um, just to think about like that in terms of power then too, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. the power to shape those decisions or lack of decisions for people like yeah politics around affordances yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and like her like way of fixing it was to say not fixing it but sort of like advocating for um things like ux and ia to be like hey let's structure this a little bit better let's talk about the way that we um the language you use to talk about certain things like there were games that for the gender slider it said sex appeal and things like that. What? Yeah. So like there were things where, or hormones was one of them. Mm. And it was just like, let's talk about that because yeah. that's not okay. <laughs> and people don't want to go into that and be like, oh, cool. Like that's how you're thinking about my identity. Mm-hmm. And like the power that those like, essentially those game development teams have over like the rhetoric of this like person creation like super problematic and um i think it's interesting that no one ever thinks of like those spaces being created by game developers but they are and like those are people who do not get training in rhetoric and who do not Mm -hmm. get training and and that kind of thing but maybe should Mm -hmm. yeah listener (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's like a thing that i have to do every episode now (laughs) yeah yeah it makes me think of like all the ai stuff like happening now like oh yes i mean you give with those limited choices then like you are like and if someone opts into that or tries it then they are like i mean they are putting themselves in in the box that you created Mm -hmm. you know like with with i think this like false sense of agency yeah that like you had all these choices and you chose these things so you got to choose like (laughs) my choices were limited (laughs) from the start so i don't know And I think you can extrapolate those considerations to things like collage making and basket weaving, right? The politics surrounding those spaces. Maybe, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to continue. The affordances for certain people in those spaces, right? right? Like mm-hmm. they're very gendered. Mm-hmm. They're both very gendered and they're both very like limited for certain people. Yeah. So people mm-hmm. talk about multimodality a lot without talking about like who's welcome in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Especially like, digital rhetoric, like tech. Yeah. Did you all see that? Like somebody tweeted about this last week that like there was this article that was like um, 
makers and maker spaces are made up of 90% men. Yeah. And it was like, I because, retweeted that. I yeah, was like, okay. all the people who, like, all you people out there who are into, uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to, follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't mean to interrupt, but yeah, no, totally. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. No, keep talking because you know more about this. Well, no, and I was thinking about like basket weaving and we think about these practices that we do to like maintain our cultures because like they're trying to exist in this oppressive world. Like it kind of helps us get at that oppressive world, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is bringing up too part of that conversation. I think, Rebecca, you mentioned like the gendered aspects of these things Mm -hmm. and the legitimacy we give to some forms of multimodality are often because they're connected to this like white male culture, mm-hmm. like right. digital practices. Going back yeah. to that article mm-hmm. that Elise just mentioned, that's totally like what my problem with it was because like a lot of the people who research those maker spaces are all just like white dudes who only talk to each other and like cite each other and then that's it. Yeah. And women um, and people of color have had been that maker forever. spaces forever. They're just mm-hmm. not calling them maker spaces, mm-hmm. but somehow that doesn't count. Like if you included those spaces as maker spaces, it wouldn't be 90% white dudes again because look at pinterest like like, well yeah but like maker spaces again it it gets to that legitimacy of like innovation like Mm -hmm. ooh, makers and Mm -hmm. like innovation spaces and hubs and stuff it's like well you can't like you're not gonna go like just here are the demographics of like a knitting circle like of course because no one's like talking about the legitimacy of that space Mm -hmm. yeah because it's women's work yeah this is a little off topic, but a couple years ago, I was at the Columbus, Ohio State Fair. I guess I was in Columbus and I was at the Ohio State Fair. And I was in the like the room where all the crafts and stuff is yeah. made. And so I was like going through and looking at all the quilts and stuff. They have a whole exhibit for people who want to make shit out of Brillo pads. What? <laughs> they were just sculptures of Brillo pads. And I was like. If you need a new layer of skin, just go sleep with that blanket. I just like stared at them forever. There were all these like really ornate sculptures made out of Brillo. And I was just like, I love that this is a category. I love that there were multiple people who like are into Brillo. Like, yes. I want to see Brillo in Redcom. I want to see it now. It's going to be our new maker space. This is the Brillo space. Yeah. We'll, be, we'll be Brilloing. <laughs> I'm thinking about the word composition right now. And a lot of the composition that we do has to have like an argument or something, right? Mm-hmm. But when you think about the composition involved in like a blanket or a quilt, there's no argument there. Mm-hmm. It's also, is that something? Is that a thing? I don't know. Am I just like talking no, and I, taking up space? I think, no, I think that's exactly what people, like Jody Shipka talks about that all the time. When she's trying to like show uh, people that when she has her students do these multi- multimodal compositions, she is doing like lots of material composition work. And there's always some fool like, old retcon person who raises their hand and is like, well, how do you assess this? Or they're like, well, where would you put the footnotes? <laughs> and they think it's hilarious. And Shipka constantly is talking about how, like, as long as you have these people who believe that, like, the only form of composition that is um, worthwhile is one where you can linearly explain an argument, then you're missing out on all the, like, very complex rhetorical choices that people are making when they make blankets or when they write a bunch of stuff on a pair of point shoes or when they bake a pie and come into class and talk about what that pie means. Like, like what's your thesis? Uh, my blanket is pretty. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that's part of it too. I know Malia 
Powell has talked about this a lot as well, which is like, it's such a colonial way of understanding too, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. like to make an argument is to carve out space for you, which means occupying and colonizing that space, Mm -hmm. which imagines that there's a limited amount of space in which we can work and you must carve out your piece and there's nowhere else that anyone can work within that piece. Um, and it's such this like competitive way of viewing things rather than saying like, oh, you, there's a story in this blanket. It may not be an argument, but the story matters and it matters for these reasons and it matters because it connects to these other things and histories and land and people. And yeah. 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 It's a great point. I think a decolonial perspective um, of composition would, would help multimodal scholars a lot. I don't know if this is related, but um, I'm working right now on crafting um, two lesson plans for like an adopt a Korean adoptee unit in Teresa Teresa Monberg's um, ARCA 492 capstone senior seminar class. Um, it's about counter memory, um, and she specifically looks at it at the content like through like Asian American content, and so I will get to lead a unit on. Korean adoptees and like one of the one of the things that we're going to talk about is we're going to watch this documentary called aka soul um which arguably is a multimodal piece because it's you know a movie documentary (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so um it's just been it's been interesting because like one of the themes in her class that she talks with her students is uh disidentification and just like disidentifying from dominant narratives and Mm -hmm. the kind of pain and trauma that comes from that, but also the possibilities that come from it then too. Um, and she said, she was talking about this idea of return and this documentary hat goes like at the end, like says, you know, all the, all these stories that these adoptees come full circle. Um, so I wonder if like that could play into or like inform or be part of a, <laughs> um, a decolonial perspective mm-hmm. on multimodality. Um, that it can be used to confront these really oppressive and traumatic narratives and realities in order to remember, literally remember, mm-hmm. um, and create like new possibilities or option, decolonial options, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. No. Or at all. <laughs> yes. I think that absolutely is. And it reminds me of Stacey Waits's Cultivating, Cultivating the Scavenger. I think it's a piece out of Patho from like 2014. Um, Stacy Wade is talking about uh, Stacy Wade grew up like this queer kid, and uh, and there were a lot of times as she was growing up where just teachers thought that she was like a real abstract weird thinker, and so like she sometimes there was a lot of disconnect in the classroom, and she had this one teacher who just like got it, and he would when he noticed that she was getting disengaged in class, he would take her outside and like go tell her to go collect just random stuff out in the like playground so she would like pick up leaves and wood chips and stuff and then he would be like go make something and she kind of uses that example as a way to be like like let's adopt scavenger rhetorics like let's be scavengers like let's go out and and find new queerer ways of knowing and thinking that can allow us to create spaces for people who are seen as like outside of the norm for thinking like how do we make life-sustaining spaces for people who don't who, who are not part of the mainstream or who are, you know, are in historically marginalized positions. Like this is one way of doing it. I think you're, yeah. I think that makes perfect sense. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've been thinking a lot about making space, right? Mm-hmm. And like a safe space. I wonder though, does that... So where does a safe space exist? Because I'm thinking about it like post-structurally. Um, <laughs> so there's always like the mainstream and then we have like what runs counter does that safe place exist in between then? Does it create like a space above those? I don't think there's sweater is a safe space. That's not real. I have lots of feelings yeah. on safe space. <laughs> well, I come from trauma, but but I do believe it's possible, and I'm going to stop moving. I so should I'm stop using the term safe space. Maybe just like not third space either, because that's safe thing enough. too safe enough. Well, <laughs> Trixie. <laughs> alternatives like an alternative place. I personally hate the word space because it's been used so much, but. Um, like an alternative existence where there isn't an assumed subjugator, an assumed subjugator, a gaydi, um, that there's just a new place that people exist without that. So in my work, I argue not for safe spaces, but for empathetic and receptive spaces. And that's the term that I prefer. Um, coming from trauma studies, there's, I mean, I think if this is kind of what you're getting at, at least when you're like, is there even such a thing as a safe space? And I think that for a lot of people, there's not. And there's no way to set that up in a way that doesn't have hierarchies. Um, and there's yes. also a certain level in which, uh, like, discomfort does facilitate learning. But there's also a certain level of discomfort that's um, destructive to learning. And so, like, what I talk about with, like, empathetic and receptive spaces is that it cultivates a certain level of discomfort, but stops it before it reaches that destructive point. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that means not only training people to like talk and tell their stories, but training people in how to like listen and receive those stories in an <clears> empathetic <throat> way. Um, and to me, that's what like, if we're going to use safe space, that's what that would get closest to. Yeah. And I would even argue, um, Will, what you were saying about like, is there this other like place where eventually we, we do these things and then we're in like, the place that we are trying to get to. I I don't I don't know if that's I don't know if that's what it is though because like again I'm just going to keep coming back to this idea of like of making as world making um or like even the kinds of stuff that we learned when we were taking um Malia's rhetorical histories class was just like coloniality is like all over everywhere but you can choose to just like reject coloniality and to be like, this is not, that might be your reality, but this is not my reality. And that in some way can like wholly impact your life for the better, um, regardless of whether people are like, that's real or not. But for you, you can, that can be a real part of your life. And so if we're thinking about a practice like making a basket, in those moments, you're asserting your culture and your identity and in those ways, you are kind of rejecting colonial narratives about what would what would constitute real making or not real making. Um, but that doesn't mean that like everything else disappears. You're just doing it within this world where there are like all sorts of people believing all sorts of things who see that as legitimate or not. But when you make, you can make a, a, a world for yourself that pushes back against those things that you find oppressive. I don't know. Yeah. I like that. That's a good explanation of what I was trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) 
I can never do this. That's why I like this because it's always really nice to like be able to go back and listen and like hear really smart people explain what I'm trying to think about <laughs> clearly. I think that actually connects too to how multimodality, how multimodal composing can be, can can do that work, um, especially when you you mention like the the roles of like it makes me think of like when I was reading Hyben Hong's book, uh, Running Against Racial Injury, she quotes Carlos Gutierrez Jones, who talks about um, this concept that he calls racial injury, which mm-hmm. he says is the reason why, you know, uh, conversations about race in America tend to be so unproductive and damaging because we tend to assume these really binary roles of victim and victimizer. And that interpolates us into these roles that like we can't get out of then um, or that the only and I think we've seen this time and time again in different movements where like I mean this is like the you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools kind mm-hmm. of kind of thing like or in feminism like the answer isn't just to take every man out and replace them with a woman like <laughs> you know like because then you end up re- then your options become like oh well to get out of victimhood then I have to become the victimizer mm-hmm. um but and I'm thinking of like AKA Soul the documentary again, like thinking of how like connected all these people are and like with people actually telling their stories. Um, and we can use multimodality to do that in this way that isn't necessarily saying that or is giving people more options, I guess, than just like victim and aggressor. Like they can look at these through multimodality, they look at engage these like past traumas and these times that they have been victimized and maybe even critically look at the times that they were victimized, but then kind of come to like, I don't know what I'm getting at. But <laughs> no, I think they're doing a great job. But I like, uh, and I was thinking about some of these tensions too. And I think what you're saying speaks to a tension that I've been thinking and writing about in my comps, <laughs> <laughs> which is that. And I think a lot of us feel this tension in like our own teachings or being students in this program, which is that there's a lot of encouragement now in getting people to be creators or makers or storytellers, but not in how to be listeners and hearers mm-hmm. and audience members. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're getting at in those stories is like you're using other people's stories to help people not only come into their own as storytellers, but come into their own as like audience members. Mm-hmm. And that's when, when I talk about like empathetic and receptive spaces and safe spaces and stuff, that's what that is. Is like it's a space in which you feel comfortable telling your story, but it's a space in which you're also trained to like hear other people's stories and like the things mm-hmm. that you're saying, Kate. And that's not victim or victimizer necessarily. Mm-hmm. I would like to like think about that more. Mm-hmm. And that kind of brings it full circle to the idea of like we don't have these really great pieces to like point to. It's mm-hmm. like, do we prioritize before we get into this? Let's start thinking about how we're listening and how we're receiving these things, or do we prioritize start creating so that people can use those as a yeah. like model by which there to... is a big push for creating and innovating because I remember like the um the opening speech, what are they called? Keynote? Keynote for Four C's in Houston in 2015. Joyce Lott Carter like mm-hmm. literally told everybody, go and innovate, be an entrepreneur, create. So <laughs> there is like a legit big push to do that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I haven't really seen that much about it. Well, I have seen because I attended a panel about it. But that was rhetorical listening, which I think plays into this, right? I've seen some stuff mm-hmm. on, I went to an empathy panel at Feminism and Rhetorics, and they kind of talked about that. Um, 
not entirely in ways that I agree with, but I did mm-hmm. appreciate that they were talking about the need to teach empathy. Um, and I think that that's, there are people out there who are starting to talk about those things. Um, but there are more people talking about how to teach students to find their voice and stuff like that, which is important in some ways, but um, I think it's not the only thing that should be taught. Mm-hmm. Time and energy seem like a big, or like big factors in multimodality too. Like, And even like you said, training people to like giving them the tools and the moves to, and the strategies to listen um, and to be audience members. Seems like it would take a while. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the empathy panel I went to, they were devoting entire courses to that. That's so, amazing. Which means that there's not space in which students are telling their stories because they're like, we're going to spend, uh, spend an entire semester teaching you to just listen. Yeah. Just listen for a minute. Wow. Like, I would love to be in that class. Yeah. I would love to see what some, yeah. some people <laughs> feel yeah. some type of way in that class. <laughs> yeah. I'm some of my planning students. on teaching that class eventually someday. So. Yeah. I don't know how great that would go in a first year composition class. I yeah. want to find out. <laughs> Learn, find out for us. Yeah. <laughs> Report back. Yeah. <laughs> no. Did we run out of things to say? Yeah, that usually happens. See, it's been 40 minutes and like it naturally came to an end on its own. Really good combo. Yeah, mm-hmm. everybody in this room is so smart. Seriously, mm-hmm. though. No, like, not. Mm, like, that's how I feel about me. <laughs> I was with you there. I was like, mm, I don't know. No, I thought that that was a really good like conversation. I think everyone said yeah. very generative things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can use this as the start for a panel about multimodality. I was going to say, this is its own multimodal composition. Yeah. We made our own world for an hour. Bam. <laughs> right here in the conference room. Where's our article, guys? <laughs> Coming to a conference near you. <laughs> Be on the lookout. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah thanks thank for coming. Um, yay! Yay! yay. yay. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs>